Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Story time. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Former park ranger. A few years ago, my friend Tez and I set out on the Great American Road Trip. We were going to drive from New York to Los Angeles, zigzagging through the country for six weeks. We were both in our early 20s, pretty broke, and as my mom had been a long-haul trucker, I suggested that to save a ton of money, we should sleep in the back of our hatchback. It was a pretty cozy setup. We bought some blankets and sheets at Goodwill and cut one of them up to make curtains. By the end of the first week, we'd gotten so we could set up camp in about 10 minutes, 
Luggage moved to the front, curtains up, bedding laid down and out for the night. We slept in parking lots, free campsites, rest areas, basically anywhere it seemed safe and semi-legal. There was never a night after the first night where we felt scared until the last week of the trip in Arizona. We were near Flagstaff and had gotten pretty used to our routine. We didn't go on a set schedule and would never drive more than three or four hours a day. No destination really in mind outside a few must-see landmarks. We'd drive to places we found the night before on Google and take suggestions from other campers, locals, and people we met. We'd also gotten very good at making friends. We went to Denny's with a group of rednecks we met at a campsite in the back of their pickup because I got hungry and overheard them saying they were going to go. We met an 80-year-old cowboy who took us out drinking and taught us to line dance at a country bar, hope you're still kicking Grandpa Mac. Played the guitar with some musicians in the middle of a thunderstorm. Got fed breakfast and dinner by tons of campers who invited us to hang out with them. Spent the 4th of July with a family who basically adopted us into their campsite grandma gave us some weed candy. Basically every encounter we had with a stranger was a positive one. This night didn't look to be any different. We found a free campsite on Google and drove up into the woods, following our GPS. We were pretty far out of town and something seemed a little bit off when we pulled up to the campsite. There was one RV parked and two cars further up in the trees. We pulled up near the RV and a man opened the door. Tez waved hello and he just stared at her. His expression was completely blank. Then, as if she hadn't said anything, he just slowly closed the door again, staring at us the entire time. Figuring he just wanted some privacy and thought we'd be obnoxious, we pulled further down the road and found a flat spot to park the car. Instead of our usual routine of setting up camp immediately while it was still light out, we goofed around for a while, smoking and laughing and taking dumb photos of ourselves. Tez pointed out a campfire further down the campsite, and we decided to go be friendly. We'd met so many cool people in the previous five weeks by just going up and offering beer or just chatting, so we wandered over. Near the campfire there were two men, the owners of the cars we'd seen earlier. They seemed friendly, and we sat down to chat with them. They were drinking and smoking, and we sat down and had a beer with them. One of the men seemed pretty off, and we came to find out that the two of them didn't actually know one another. The older man was definitely on some sort of drugs. He was spinning in circles and talking about UFOs, however, he seemed harmless. This left us chatting with the younger man, who claimed to be a former park ranger. He was handsome and easygoing, and we spent several hours just chatting about our trip families, everything. Then he started talking about the bear. He'd seen a bear earlier in the forest. Tez didn't believe him, and he pulled out his camera to show her photos of the bear. It was very close to the campsite, and we both were a little freaked out. It wasn't unheard of for one of us to get up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, so the idea of a bear hanging around in the night spooked us. The ranger just laughed, and then his expression changed completely. It's hard to describe, but his voice seemed somehow cold. He said, If you get out of your car in the middle of the night, it's not a bear you should be worried about. I kept waiting for the laugh, or for him to nudge Tez with his elbow. Jokes on the foreigner and the city girl, right? He never did. I laughed awkwardly and made a dumb joke about serial killers in the woods. 
My friend laughed as well and joked about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We moved on to another subject, but within five minutes the ranger had come back to it and was talking about something grabbing us from our car in the middle of the night. No matter how we tried to steer the conversation away from serial killers, he kept latching back on. The older man was high as a kite at this point and was staring at the stars, not talking. We just awkwardly laugh and sip our beer and try to get the conversation going somewhere else. Then the ranger stood up and walked towards the cooler to get another beer. At this point, it's pitch black out and I can't see anything outside the circle of light from the campfire. The beer cooler was outside of that circle. Suddenly, there is a red dot in the darkness and it took a moment for me to realize that it's a camera. The ranger is holding a camera. He had taken a photo of us. I could see the screen on the digital camera lit up. Now, it wasn't odd for the people we met to ask to take pictures with us. My friend Tez is gorgeous, dark hair, blue eyes like a young Megan Fox, and we were friendly. People like having pictures of themselves. It was an entirely strange thing to have this person taking a photo of us without asking or even indicating that that's what he was doing. We were both staring at him like deer in the headlights at this point, but instead of realizing what he's doing is a bit weird, he checks his camera, adjusts some things, and takes another photo. This time with a flash. No asking us to smile, no proposing a group photo, and no explanation. After this photo, he comes back to the fire and sits down. Not a word said about the photo. At this point, me and Tez are mutually freaked out. We make some BS excuse that we need to go set up our campsite and nope the hell out. When we stand to leave, the UFO guy smiles and says to have a good night. Ranger, however, looks at us with a smile that doesn't reach his eyes and says, Be careful out there, there's more than bears in the woods. Every hair on my body stood on end. I wasn't alone in my discomfort, either because Tez laughed a response out and pulled me away from the campfire towards our car. We rushed back to the car, which we only found in the dark by referencing the RV, and jump in the front seats. My friend Tez is all but hyperventilating. Why did he take pictures of us? I was shaking. I responded. I read that serial killers sometimes warn their victims. She stared at me for a second and locked the car doors. Do you think he just took victim photos of us? We both freaked out. She's in a full panic and turns the headlights on in the car. I immediately yell at her to turn them off because now he knows exactly where our car is. God knows why, but that is the only night we'd not set up camp. We didn't need to tear anything down, so we just put the car in drive and floored it out of the campsite. As we got onto the dirt road, Ranger was walking towards our car with that same cold expression. Ranger, let's not meet ever again. I used to live in western Washington, Statine, the US. It is very woodsy. There is this one stretch of road deep in the Olympic National Forest. It goes around a bend, and then you see up two mountainsides packed with trees. On one side, we got out and parked and took a driving break. We walked a bit into the woods so I have a strong sixth sense, had it since I was in kid. I also have an irrational fear of inbred mountain men, a lie the original wrong turn, the hills have eyes, etc. So we found a clearing maybe 100 yard on the tree line, it's a roundish clearing, 
We played for a bit, then I was going to sneak around the back of a tree in the clearing. On the opposite side of this tree was a symbol, not one I recognized. Thought it was a kid possibly years ago. But I started looking at the other trees, and they had marks as well. I started to feel a deep fear and a sense that we needed to leave. I'm lucky that my family and friends trust my judgment, but we had a lot of pushback from my younger brother. He dragged his feet and I was ushering us all back to the car. He's halfway between the clearing and the car, I was not watching him. I hear running and he's booking it to the car, screaming go go. He jumps in and we take off. I look out the rear view to see two scrawny men come out of the woods. They looked dirty and like their faces were crooked. I have driven by that spot two more times in later years and never had the inclination to stop again. I live in northern Michigan and I've had a lot of weird experiences. So here's a pretty tame experience to start off with. My parents own a 10 acre property and a good half of it is made up of woods that back up to a national forest. It was pretty early in the evening, so there was still light out when we were coming up the driveway. Once we were a good 15 feet away from their garage, we saw this black thing or animal run in front of our car and into the grassy field to the left of our driveway. It was quadrupedal and about the size of a medium dog. It was really fast, so I didn't get a good look at its face, but I know it had a long, skinny tail and had no fur from what I could tell. It had back legs much like a dog's but ran more like a cat. It sort of bounced more than it ran if you can picture that in your head at all. We brushed it off at first, thinking maybe it was just my mother's dog. That is until her dog came out of the garage. The dog didn't react to this thing at all. This event happened a few months ago and we recently had my parents over for dinner. While we were talking about weird experiences, my mom mentioned how she and my father have been seeing this black thing walking out in the neighbor's tree line and they haven't been able to get a great look at it, but they have no clue what it could be. We assume what we saw was the same thing my parents have been seeing. My father also mentioned there being a time when he was out on a trail in the woods all by himself and he heard something growl at him and it scared him enough to go back to the house. I can't say if this was related though. If anyone has any theories or knows of any animals that this thing could possibly be, let me know. Thank you in advance. I once had a close friend who was an avid hiker. We'll call her Annie for the sake of keeping her identity safe. She spent most of her free time hiking trails in and around the Appalachian region of Tennessee and North Carolina. No matter the time of year, she would always be out hiking. One summer, she decided to spend a few weeks hiking the Appalachian Trail. She wasn't going to do the full thing. She intended to start at the beginning in Springer Mountain, Georgia, and finish up at the Shenandoah National Park in Virginia. I was all for it and encouraged her to do it. I helped her prepare, and we even arranged for me to meet her where the trail crossed through the Newfound Gap area in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park GSMNP. I was going to bring her new supplies and hike for a few days with her along the trail while she was in the park close by to where I lived at the time. The time came for her to begin her journey, and I drove her to the trailhead, dropped her off, and left behind a very excited and determined Annie. During the first few weeks of her journey, 
I received several postcards from her as she would stop in and pick up her prearranged packages containing re-ups of food and supplies. She would write as often as she could to assure me she was safe and making good time. Eventually, July rolled around and it was getting close to when I was going to meet her. Before she left, we had sat down and figured out about when she would be reaching the backcountry shelter we were set to meet at. July 10th was the day we settled on. She was supposed to send me a postcard from the last re-up spot before when we were set to meet, and true to all of her previous cards, I received one detailing that she felt great and was on schedule to meet me at the Mount Leconte shelter on July 7th. I had received the card on July 2nd. We were going to stay at the lodge for the evening and have dinner and rest up before continuing the trail. Mount Leconte Lodge was one of the more popular destinations in the park and you had to make the reservation months in advance in order to have a shelter for one night. It was important that we stayed true to our schedule and Annie knew this very well. I gathered up all the supplies we would need and had my then boyfriend drive me to the trailhead. He was going to hike with me to the shelter and leave once I had met up with Annie. We had a great time hiking there, enjoying the breathtaking views of the Smokies while panting and sweating our way up the steep climbs. Eventually we made it to the shelter and I fully expected Annie to be there waiting for us. It was mid-afternoon and we had been running an hour or two behind schedule. We went to the front desk to see if she had made it and checked in, only to find that she had not arrived yet. We didn't think much of it because you can't be completely sure of when someone is going to arrive with this kind of stuff, so we took our gear and settled in our bunker. We went up to the lodge and had some coffee and leisurely enjoyed our books and the views while waiting for Annie to arrive. Sunset came and she still hadn't shown up. This is when I began to get worried. My boyfriend and I walked over to the office and asked if anyone named Annie had tried to check in and to our dismay, no one had. We went back to our shelter and my boyfriend tried to calm me down as my anxiety began to take over. She's probably running behind schedule. The trails in this area of the park reached the highest elevations of the entire at. She probably got worn out and fell behind track, he assured me. If she doesn't get here tonight, she'll probably make it by tomorrow, don't worry. I tried to let his words soothe my worries as we laid down for rest, but I endured a long, sleepless night. She didn't show up the next day. We waited at the office for hours, but she never came. Around two in the afternoon, we decided to hike down the trail towards the direction she was due to be coming from. We told the lady at the front office to tell Annie we would be back if she arrived while we were gone. We left, but we did not find her anywhere. We made it back to Mount Lecon Lodge around 5 p.m. and found out she had not been there. From this point, things got hectic. I won't go into much detail with it, but we had no choice but to leave the lodge and return home, leaving contact information with the people at the lodge to let us know if she ever arrived. Days passed and no sign of her arose. Anxiety and guilt and fear ate me alive in the days following. We had notified the police and mass search parties were sent out. Rangers, the police, and volunteers scoured the area between where she was last seen and where she was supposed to arrive. It wasn't until almost a week and a half later that they found her, bruised and starving, hiding in a ravine about 30 miles away from the Appalachian Trail and the shelter she last stayed at. 
Just over a day later, I was finally allowed to see her at the hospital. She didn't told the police anything about what happened, she hadn't even spoken at all. Matter of fact, it took her a few years to tell me what had fully happened to her, including the details that she wouldn't tell the police. The experience had made her quit hiking altogether, and she still won't go near the GSMNP. I'm not sure if she would like me sharing this with you guys, but I want people to be aware that this exists, and it's something you should look out for when hiking. The Smokies most likely aren't the only place where this can happen. I will tell you exactly as I remember, in her words, as best I can. I left the last shelter at around 8 in the morning on June 31st, and I hiked most of the day, making really good time. I was resting and eating some snacks to give me the last boost of energy I needed to make it to my campsite for the night. It was late in the afternoon, and that's when I first heard it. The sounds of men's voices came from a pretty good distance away. I couldn't make out what they were saying, but I figured it was just some guys walking the trail, nothing out of the ordinary. I sat there for another 15 minutes, but nobody ever walked by. The voices would come in and out. It was weird, but at this point I had been hiking alone for a few weeks, so I assumed I was just making up things in my head because I was lacking in regular human contact. I grabbed my things and continued on my way, reaching my campsite just as the sun disappeared and light was waning. I set up my tent and strung my belongings up on the wire cables to keep them from bears and animals if they decided to wander over. I was relaxing in my sleeping bag reading a book when I heard it again. Voices. Louder now than before. I could faintly make out heavy Appalachian accents, though it was still difficult to make out their conversation. I waited for the sound of leaves crunching or twigs cracking to indicate hikers joining my sight, but the sound never came. I shut my eyes and willed myself to sleep. You're just hearing things, I told myself. The next morning greeted me with the soft sounds of birds chirping and a soft breeze humming through the trees and against my tent. I went outside and to my dismay found some wrappers of my freeze-dried food scattered across the ground. They looked as if they had been torn into and all the food was gone. It was only a couple of packs so I still had a decent supply. I guess the squirrels had found a way into my backpack. The only strange part about it was that my backpack was zipped shut and didn't show signs of any nibbling or scratches an animal would have left. I packed up my campsite uneasily, trying not to think about the coincidence of the voices I heard the night before. I walked faster this day, trying to keep a quicker pace with the hopes that I would leave the weird voices and strange happenings behind me. I had been hiking for a few hours, passing a very minimal amount of people when I heard the voices again. They didn't go away this time, they always seemed to stay at a steady pace behind me, and no matter how many times I looked over my shoulder, I could never find anyone. I came upon my next campsite and made the split decision to hike through the night. If these people who had been following me were dangerous, I didn't want to set up camp and leave myself in a vulnerable position to be attacked. I walked slowly through the night, using my flashlight as a guide. The voices had stopped a couple hours ago, and I was beginning to feel like I had lost them, whoever they were. I came to a small opening in the trail and decided I would rest for a few hours because my feet felt like they were on fire from all the walking I had done. I hadn't even taken the tent from my backpack when I heard the voices, this time directly behind me. There she is, 
A deep voice rung through my ears and I spun around, pointing my flashlight in the eyes of two men who were ragged, dirty, and unshaven. The look in their eyes was sinister, and I will never forget the way my skin crawled beneath their gaze. I screamed and took off running in the direction I had come from. I could hear their bare feet running along the trail behind me as I ran. When I was far enough away and over a hill, I cut off the trail and sprinted as fast as I could through the brush and trees. It was breaking dawn at this point so I was able to maneuver easier than if it were still pitch black out. For the next two weeks I hid in the woods, dodging their looming voices and hiding in bushes. They were never far off. Sometimes I would see them, wandering around and talking about the things they wanted to do to me. They looked as if they hadn't bathed in months, and they both only wore torn up cargo shorts. Their hair was long, and their bodies were covered in mud. I knew I wouldn't have anyone looking for me for at least another week, because no one was expecting me until July 7th. I barely fended for myself, struggling to find water and to ration my food accordingly. I knew if they found me, they would do bad things to me. I felt it in their eyes. I felt it when I looked at their clenched fists and heard their raspy voices. Eventually, a park ranger and a group of volunteers found me. A few weeks after being home and out of the hospital, I did some research and found out there were people who would hide in the mountains to escape the law, living there in order to avoid jail for the crimes they had committed. They were people who had murdered and violated people in ways that would have warranted life in jail or even death. They are called the Wild Men. After hearing her story, I haven't gone hiking much. They can't possibly be the only ones out there. My advice to you, if you go hiking deep in the mountains, be sure to watch your back because the wild men are always lurking. Not too long ago, maybe four years ago, I was walking with my family on this trail. We did this often just as a family activity, and this time we decided to walk along a new trail. After we walked for a bit my father saw some rubble in the distance and said we should go check it out. We walked up to it and they appeared to be stone buildings very decayed and barely intact. Just half of one of each walls was standing, enough to tell what the building could have been. But then off in the distance a little bit I noticed a staircase, same type of stone, however completely different. This staircase looked as though it hadn't aged at all. Completely disregarding this, I stepped on them and walked up to the top. I looked around and saw nothing else. I asked my father to come up, but he said I should come down. Then I remember being filled with a weird feeling of dread mixed with feeling lost. I came down and then we walked a little bit more before leaving. A couple weeks ago I mentioned this to my friends and they insisted we go check it out. I brought them to the ruins and they were gone. I know I went to the exact spot but it's like they never existed. This has been nothing me so much I know I'm not crazy. Have any of you experienced something similar? Anything helps. As a young boy, I always had an interest in the outdoors. I would spend weekends at my grandparents' house, fishing in their pond or hunting for rabbits and foxes in their woods. My grandpa, a retired veteran, taught me how to shoot when I turned eight years old. He educated me about self-defense with firearms so that if I ever needed one, I could protect myself and my family until help arrived. 
My mother worked long hours as a nurse, so she wasn't around much to take care of us kids, but she still did her best to teach us right from wrong. She took us out during the weekdays occasionally, but it was mostly grandma watching over us while mom worked all day and night. Mom didn't like that we were playing with guns and we were not allowed to play outside when she wasn't home. I would sneak out of the house at night sometimes and play in the woods with my gun, but if mom caught me with my BB gun, she would ground me for a week or two. After grandma died of cancer, grandpa moved away. Mom sold the land to some developers and built a new house on an acre of land nearby, leaving us more room to run around without getting into too much trouble. I was now 15 years old, no longer just a little boy, but not quite a teenager yet. I still enjoyed going for walks in the woods, climbing trees, or cracking rocks down by the creek that ran through our property line. I always kept my BB gun close by, carrying it with me on walks, and took care of it as if it were a real firearm. If the barrel ever got dirty, or if the stock needed to be tightened up, I would take it all apart, clean everything, and then reassemble it. One spring morning, I woke up early, decided to go for a walk before school began. It was cloudy and looked like rain, but that did not stop me from going out anyway. I walked through the woods towards our old pond behind our house. I noticed two older boys standing across the creek from me, pointing at something in the water. As soon as they saw me, they darted off into the brush so fast that you would not have been able to catch them. I thought they were just up to no good, sneaking around in the woods so early before school started, and it gave me a bad feeling. I kept walking towards our old pond, but as soon as I got closer, that same uneasy feeling got worse. Something was wrong. Something had happened here at the pond that morning, and these boys knew what it was. I walked up to the edge of the creek and crossed over, dropping my backpack on a rock before wading through knee-deep water towards where they had been standing. As soon as I rounded a corner, I saw it. A large, hairy body lying face down in the grass with its arms outstretched as if someone had moved it over in the dirt and then ran off. The body was facing away from me, so I could not see any details, but it did look human-like at first glance. So I walked around to the other side and gaped in horror when I saw its face, twisted and mangled beyond belief, with one eye missing and large chunks of flesh ripped off its face crudely leaving bloody exposed teeth and nostrils above splintered pieces of flesh and destroyed bone where skin should have been. It was not moving at all, only lying there motionless in the dirt while steam slowly rose from hot patches of concealed blood. I turned around quickly, tripping over my feet, trying to get away from it as I ran as fast as my legs could carry me all the way home. I burst through the front door out of breath and panicked. My mom looked at me puzzled. Heather, she said calmly. What happened? Your shirt's ripped, and why are you wet? I tried to catch my breath, but could not talk, only panting heavily while I stared into her curious eyes, trying to decide if I should tell her what had just happened or pretend it never did. Did something happen in the woods today? She asked again, but this time her voice was stern, with a hint of disappointment. You know you aren't supposed to go beyond our property line without permission from either me or your father. Now tell me what you saw out there that got you so worked up and makes you look like you got into a fight. I almost told her right then about how I saw this gruesome creature that looked half human with mangled teeth and a shredded face, 
but for some reason I hesitated, looking down at my shaking hands while trying to think of what to say next. The words slowly began spilling out from my mind. I don't know, I said quietly. There was just something really weird in the woods today, kind of creepy actually. It was like this big hairy gorilla thing lying dead in the grass near the old pond. What do you mean dead? She asked, furrowing her brows. Did you hit it with your BB gun? Did you kill an animal? I don't think so, I replied nervously. It was lying on the ground facing away from me, but its face was all messed up and there was blood everywhere. It looked like somebody had ripped off half its head with their hands. At that moment, she shot up straight in her chair, suddenly slamming her fist on the table, making me jump out of my skin. She sounded more angry than worried when she suddenly started yelling at me for going into the woods by myself without permission and scaring her half to death. I tried pleading with her that I didn't see or hit anything, but it did not work. She wasn't having any of it. She wouldn't even let me change out of my dirty clothes before sending me to my room and grounding me for a month. I didn't get any dinner that night either. She must have been really mad at me to do that. It was so unfair. I hadn't done anything wrong, yet she couldn't even let it go and gave me the silent treatment all night long, making me sit in my room without telling her why I did what I did. I can still remember how much I cried myself to sleep that night after going to bed hungry, wondering why she was doing this to me instead of comforting me and listening when I tried telling her about what happened. That memory remains strong in my head even to this day, even though it happened many years ago when I was just a kid. That memory is somehow still very clear. I had seen things as a kid off and on, but I didn't remember any of it. Always stories from my mom, aunt, grandma about some creepy shit. I said to them, usually these incidents had allegedly happened at one particular aunt's house, Aunt Sandy's. Around 17 years old, I remember thinking about how they all used to tell me these stories and thinking to myself, I think I lost it, the ability to see ghosts. Then days later something happened that made me realize that it never really goes away. My aunt's house that I would see stuff at as a child was built in the 1-800s western New York area. My cousin who grew up in that house and I are very close and in age we are two years apart. She was 15 year old at the time and we are the only two females out of the kids, so we are like sisters. I remember vividly, we were in her bed. She was telling me about the boy she liked and I was listening. Her bedroom door was shut and her lights were on and we were sitting there going about our business. While she was talking her voice got fainter, I could still hear her rambling on but it was muffled. I looked over at the bedroom door to my left, in the direction my cousin was sitting and her shut door appeared open to me. Standing in the doorway was a hooded figure. I looked at it for a bit, realized that the door should be shut and not open. Shook my head literally like how they do in the movies because I was so confused by what was happening. Immediately the visual scene returned to normal and the door appeared shut as I knew it to be. My cousin still rambling notices me shake my head and trying to get my barrings back and asked what was wrong. I said, weird, I think I just saw a ghost. We are weird and were not scared and thought it was cool lol. Fast forward a few weeks, we are at my other aunt's house, Aunt Renee visiting my grandparents who were staying there. 
while they were in town from Florida. My cousin and I were in a room by ourselves and talking when we could hear out in the kitchen my aunt Sandy cousin's mom with the haunted house telling a ghost story. Because her ghost stories were always the best she also didn't get scared by things we got all excited I said, oh sounds like ghost story time, and we ran out to the kitchen. As soon as I came into view I said, Aunt Sandy, are you telling ghost stories? And she looked at me and said, yeah, it's a new one oh, you have seen him too. Like she knew this just by looking at me. I said, yes, the last time I was at your house. She said, what did you see? I told her I thought it was a monk and that he didn't scare me, he just looked at me and that was it. She said, he is a monk. Our house used to have a few of them who lived there at one point. He's a nice ghost. He checks on us all throughout the night. He walks up and down the hallway. He came into my room the other night. I thought it was Uncle Hank so when Uncle Hank finally got into bed, I yelled at him for coming in and out of the room all night and asked him what in the hell he was looking for on the dresser. He thought I was nuts and said that was the first he had been up all night. So that sold me on the whole ghost thing. But here is how I can be a little less sad when I lose someone in the physical world. Subsequent to the above ghost story, a lifetime has passed. My aunt is gone now, and when she passed I had been through a tough divorce with an abusive man and was always fighting over custody of my kids to keep them safe. Aunt Sandy left this world prematurely, but on her deathbed she said to me, I am her goddaughter, I have a list. My cousin and I asked what she meant. She said, I have a list of the people that I am going to haunt when I die. Mariah, my grandpa's current wife, is on it, and so is your exuspend. I laughed because I thought it was cute that on her deathbed, she loved me so much she was plotting revenge on my behalf against my ex in the afterworld. It was funny until it happened. Then it was awesome. She passed away May 1. August 17th, after a very dramatic and stressful week of my ex-husband trying to run away or kidnap with our kids, he just brought them to me. He told me he was giving me full custody, and I wouldn't have any trouble from him going forward, he just wanted peace. I was very confused, these comments were extremely off the wall, he sounded like he had gone completely crazy. He told me how he thought his neighbor had been trying to break into his house, and that he even thought he had a secret way into his side of the duplex. He stated that he had cameras around and proceeded to show me footage of our dog greeting someone at the garage door area, but it was slightly off and you didn't have a full view of the door so you couldn't see if anyone was actually there, but her body language suggested she was greeting someone by the way this is not a friendly dog to strangers so not convinced she'd let a non-family member into the house. My aunt though, she was like the dog whisperer. Animals in general loved her even the wild ones. This apparently had been going on for a few months and was intensifying hearing things the dog acting like it was engaged with someone who wasn't on camera. Despite his 12 video cameras around the house he kept hearing things, but he never could find anyone in the house when he would look. At this point of sleep depravity, he really started to unravel and eventually, he decided that the kids needed to be with me where they were safe since his neighbor was after him for no apparent reason. I honestly think my aunt haunted this guy until he gave me full custody of my kids. I know she did. His neighbors were an elderly brother and sister who shared the other half of the duplex. 
Neither of them were able-bodied enough to perform anything exceptional, let alone do it discreetly. He surrendered the children to me, and they are both grown now and are happy and healthy. So the story when I was 17 let me know that ghosts are real. And the story from adulthood let me know that even if our bodies are gone, our energy is still so here. There are woods behind my house, not very large, about five acres I'd guess. Well, several dog walkers told me they had seen someone hiding in a bush, totally naked eating a can of baked beans with his hands. Eventually someone called the police, and we were surprised to see about seven or eight police vehicles turn up as well as the armed response unit British version of SWAT. Turns out the guy was actually my aunt's neighbor. He was living with his mother and suffered severe schizophrenia. Anyway, one day his mother went missing, and when the police were eventually contacted to report her missing the son went missing too. After apprehending the son, and after they excavated the back garden, they found his mother's body buried in there with her skull bashed in. He had unalived her because he thought she wasn't his mother, but a person pretending to be her, and she was doing tests on him in his sleep. Crazy stuff. Know your neighbor's people. I've had a number of experiences. After my dad died, I was at work and was alone in a conference room reading material and typing. I had one of those flexible U-shaped earbud headsets around my neck. The end on each side rested about one half inches below my collarbone. I was typing and felt something moving on my left side from my chest to the back of my shoulder. I patted my upper chest on the left and didn't feel the headset. The left side of it was over my shoulder. I moved it back and tried to figure out how it could have moved. I started typing again. A couple of minutes later, it happened again. There is no way that anything I was doing could cause that to happen. It takes deliberate action to move them. My dad was a prankster so maybe he did it. Another series of events involves an antique lawyer's bookcase that I bought. I brought each of the five pieces into the house, dusted and assembled it, and put some small antiques in it. As soon as I left the room it was in, a cross necklace that I had worn for years and never had issues with fell off my neck onto the floor. I checked the clasp and it was fine. Shortly after getting it, I got a consulting gig in Arkansas for six months. While there, I bought some other small antiques and 1960s civil rights documents. When I got home, I dusted the cabinet and put in the new antiques. That night, the chain on my cross necklace broke. I replaced the chain and nothing happened until I interacted with it again to dust it. When I was done, I couldn't locate my phone. I looked everywhere, tried calling it from my landline, and used the Find My Phone app on my computer. Nothing. After an hour of looking, I finally stood in the center of the family room or kitchen area and said, please give me back my phone. At that exact moment my phone pinged. It was in the laundry room under a bunch of clothes in the hamper. I only had gone into the laundry room to get a rag and furniture polish, and I live alone. The third is after I bought an antique pre-Hoosier possum cabinet. The night after it was delivered, I had fallen asleep on the couch. I woke up to a man in Dust Bowl era clothes standing in my living room. I screamed and he dissolved. A couple nights later, I woke to another man standing by my bedroom door. 
I screamed and he retreated into the wall. Over the next few weeks, I woke up to an old lady on my bed, an old lady and little girl standing beside my bed and another couple apparitions. I bought holy water and a cross and put them on the hutch. The activity stopped until I moved. I saw people in my room a couple more times while I still had the cabinet. My son's golden retriever Rosie was staying with me one of those times. I woke to see a man standing by the door, sat up and screamed. Something was on top of me. It was Rosie who was standing straddled over my body and was staring right where the apparition was. Night terrors, maybe, but I've never been paralyzed and it doesn't explain Rosie. My brother has the cabinet now. His wife refuses to let him remove the cross and holy water. I only periodically wake to heads looking at me or hands reaching for me now. I usually am able to tell myself that they won't hurt me and I wait for them to dissolve before going back to sleep. Any thoughts about these events? I'd sure love some insight. As someone who works in a national park, there are plenty of people off the grid that try to illegally set up in it. We find their camps often and tell them they need a backwoods permit or to get out. One time one of our officers found a camp well cared for that had to have been up at least a month and a half. He spoke to the man at the site and explained he needs a permit to set up anywhere. The guy explained he had lost his housing and had to set up in the woods and didn't realize he was in the park boundary. I think a majority of cases are just displaced homeless people living off the grid, but in no way would I dehumanize them and call them feral. I had an entertainment center advertised and a woman asked to come over to have a look at it. We set up a time and when the time came, she didn't show up. I texted her and a couple hours later she replied and asked if it was too late to come by. It was 10 p.m. but I said okay. She said she would be there in 10 minutes but wasn't there 20 minutes later and I texted her again. 10 more minutes she said but she hadn't shown up by 11 p.m. so I texted again and said we would have to do it another day and she replied that she was just pulling up. I go to my front door and sure enough she is pulling into the driveway and there are about four or five other people in the car with her. They all get out and start walking towards the door and I ask them what they are doing and the woman says they all want to see the entertainment center. I tell her that only she can come in and at that point I wasn't sure I even wanted her to come in. She says she needs at least one other person's opinion. I say no, she gets indignant and I ask her to leave and she says that I am not being a very good Christian. I say I am fine with that and went in my house and locked all the doors peeking out the window. One of the dudes who was with her is pissing at the end of my driveway, but then they get in the car and drive away. The whole thing was super bizarre. Roommate Sub leased his room without telling us. The three of us in the house were all around 22 years old. The guy that Sub let the room was 36, unemployed, socially awkward, and pothead not that there is anything wrong with that. He would blare Metallica all day. He would just stay in the house, only leaving at odd hours. Really sketchy. Then one day my roommate noticed his guitar was missing, and then other guitar was missing. We confronted him. 
After about 20 minutes of bullshit excuses, he admitted he pawned them for the power bill and he wouldn't have rent for us. We called the police so we could report the stolen guitars since you need to have a report to get anything from a pawn shop back. It turns out he already had a warrant out for his arrest for the same shit a town over. Anyway, the cops confronted him in our house while he was frantically trying to get all his stuff packed. He was coming down the stairs with all his luggage when the cops asked him to step outside. Right before he went outside to talk to the cops he said, don't take any of my shit, in what I think was a joking manner. Either way he was arrested and we put hit shit on the curb. Good times. This isn't a horror story at all. But the guy I sold a TV to a couple of years ago pretty much assumed that I was going to murder him and his boyfriend. I got the impression that he thought that I was going to scam him so I offered drop the TV off at his house and he could just PayPal me the money. He didn't want me knowing where he lived so I offered to have him pick it up after my daughter's soccer game. Wouldn't do that either because he said I'd have too many of my people. So I then switched it to the parking lot of my town's grocery store at 3.30pm. Nope. He finally agreed to meet me in front of the town's police station with his boyfriend and two other guys only after he called an officer outside to witness the transaction. The cop told the guy he probably shouldn't be buying stuff on Craigslist anymore. The funny thing was that he brought so many people that the TV wouldn't fit in his car. I was new to a big city and decided I didn't need my car anymore. I listed my car for sale, a six-year-old Honda Accord. A normal, well-dressed man comes over to see it after a few phone calls about it. He's in his early 40s and his name is James. He's buying it for his daughter in college. I always have my guard up when dealing with strangers, but so far James is personable and seems legitimate. He test drives it with me in it. He does a thorough inspection. He negotiates the price with me for a while. He asks me to hold the car for two days so he can get the money and come pick it up. I agree a two-day hold where I won't sell it to someone else. Two days later, James follows up and we meet again midday, normal neighborhood in an urban city. James and I test drive the car one more time. He gives me a Chase Bank cashier's check, which I said was fine. I tell him he needs to come to the bank with me to cash this check and to get the title notarized over to him. This is when he starts acting nervous. We're pulled over on the side of my street discussing this James in the driver's seat and me as the passenger. I figured if he was going to steal my car he would have two days earlier. Now I'm fairly comfortable with him. He asks me to do one more car inspection with him, then we'd go to the bank. I agree, but I'm very set on doing the transaction at a bank. As we both get out to inspect the car again, he jumps back in and floors it as I try to get back in with him. He pulls away quicker than I can react, passenger door wide open. I tried to run after him and then realized I'm not as fast as a car. There are bystanders and I hysterically ask someone to call 911. One guy does I had my phone but my adrenaline was through the roof and didn't even think of it. As I'm on a stranger's phone with dispatch, an undercover cop car with two officers pulls out of an alley five feet from me. I wave them down and hysterically explain my story. 
They tell me to hop in the back of their car, which I do. I implore them to hurry, and we can catch this guy he just drove off. I explain the car and plate and everything. They assure me that they will not go on a high-speed chase with me in the car, but will radio it in to all surrounding officers, which they do. The guy gets away, and the officers drop me off at the police station to file a report. I file an insurance claim too, and am so mad at myself for letting this happen. I suppose it's better than if I was in the car with this guy, but I'm still mad. Of course, James' burner cell phone doesn't work as soon as he had left. I go through insurance and their protocols to ensure I'm not committing fraud for about three months. The week I'm supposed to get paid, I get a call from police. They found my car. Three states over. James was working with a partner in crime, don't remember his name, let's call him Dickface. James stole the car and gave it to Dickface to sell so it wasn't traceable back to James and Dickface would have plausible deniability if he was ever questioned. Well, Dickface sold my car to an average Joe who actually did have a daughter in college who needed a car. The daughter tried to register her new car at the DMV and it came up as stolen. So the cops arranged for me, the average Joe, and Dickface whose contact info average Joe had as he paid him with a check and there was a paper trail to meet with them at the station for a little chat. Dickface denies any involvement with James, but agrees to give us the money back that Average Joe paid him if he can just leave without any problems. We all agree to this. Average Joe and I say his daughter can keep the car, and I'll take the money from Dickface. So eventually I got paid for my car. But this experience sucked balls and was very stressful. Since then I have bought and sold cars on Craigslist again. So no lesson was learned, except now I take a photo of the driver's license of all people I interact with at the start. I was going to drive from DC to Charlotte, North Carolina alone. I figured, why not post in the rideshare section to get some company and gas money. A guy messages me saying that he's interested in joining me for the ride, but he lives in Richmond, Virginia. No problem. Richmond is on the way. I respond with some information about myself and my interests, seeing as though I'm planning to spend several hours with this guy. He replies asking if we can drop off a duffel bag in Petersburg, Virginia. It sounds a bit suspicious, but sure, I tell him, no problem. We're three days away from the day we're supposed to leave. He messages me saying that he's not sure if he can go anymore because he's still waiting to hear back from his probation officer. He then goes on telling me how much of a bitch she is for making him check in and that he shouldn't even be required to notify her before he leaves the state of Virginia. I didn't reply. I was on a flight back from Thailand. We were flying to Detroit via Toronto. Well, a major storm had us stuck in Toronto for a day and a half. Every flight it seemed like we might leave then at the last second we wouldn't. I got to talking to a few people because we kept seeing each other for every possible flight out. Finally, I tell this guy I've been chatting with, man F this, we're only a few hours from Detroit. I'm renting a car. He said, yeah, me too. I said, well, if you want to save money, we can just share a car. I could see from the look on his face that his butthole puckered hard enough to make diamonds. 
He no doubt thought I was bringing in drugs and would land him in prison for life. Obviously, we drove separately. He was sort of vindicated. For each possible flight, we had to go through customs each time, which meant I had what looked like about six trips from us to Canada in two days with Thailand thrown in as well. You better believe they searched the living shit out of my car at the border like four hours of searching. When I female was 19, I was looking for a room to rent in the city I was moving to for college. It was about an hour away from my family. I wasn't having much luck and my mom started helping me look for a place. She found an ad on Craigslist for a room for $300 s in a house, everything included. The homeowner was a man and he rented the additional rooms upstairs to other women while he lived in the finished basement. The ad stated he rarely ever saw the other roommates because he had a kitchen and his own entrance downstairs and that he preferred women because he had issues with male roommates in the past partying and causing damage. We decided to take a look since it was the cheapest that we could find in the area. My mom and I went to the house to view it. Decent house, decent neighborhood. He opened the door and was very welcoming. He was middle-aged and the kitchen and living room were furnished nicely and clean. My mom loves to talk and get to know people so they were engaged in conversation while I stood there quietly and observed the place. He then said he would show me my room. We head towards the staircase to go up as I thought, since he said on the phone my room was upstairs with the other roommates, but he opens another door and we follow. He takes us down to the basement and opens a door to a very small room no closet and no windows. He proceeds to say this is my room and I will be sharing the bathroom in the hallway with him. And his bedroom did not have a door on it. I was definitely thinking absolutely not this is weird, but they were so deep in conversation that I couldn't interject. He then leads us to the upstairs and shows us the other rooms which the doors were open and says they are currently rented. He then starts telling us elaborate stories about the other women not very nice stories describing drinking problems. My mom was listening intently, but I took the time to investigate further. I looked in all three rooms and the bathrooms. There was furniture, but not a single item in there that looked like it belonged to a woman, no clothes or anything, only men's clothes in one of the closets. He had no problem with me creeping around his tenant's rooms without their permission. I then heard him tell my mom that he has some of his stuff in their closets but they don't mind, and I'm just like, um, why the hell would a tenant pay you for you to use their space as storage? I was feeling really uncomfortable and started moving them back downstairs as they talked. My mom had mentioned when we arrived that her and my dad were going on vacation the next week, but I couldn't go because I had to work. He brought it up again, and that I should come by the next week and have dinner with him and the roomies to see if we would all get along. I said sure and we left. As soon as we got in the car, I told my mom I would definitely not be living there. She was dumbfounded. I had to explain to her not only did he lie about the room I would be in, that I was not supposed to be in the basement with him as well as share a bathroom with him, and he didn't even have a damn door, but also did she not notice how no one else even lived there. She still didn't get it and thought I was just being paranoid and thought he was nice and it was a cheap deal. I had to explain it to my stepdad and get him to tell. Her by no means would I be living there. I tried to report the post, 
but by the time we got home that day he removed it. I think he planned on murdering me at dinner or abducting me and holding me hostage in that basement room that had no way to escape. I hope that guy hits a tree with his car one day. Edit. Some details have been coming back to me since I've been answering all of your questions. This happened in 2011 so it's been quite a while. When he took us upstairs there was a wide landing that was surrounded by the rooms. As soon as we go up there, he motions towards one of the rooms and started this long intricate story about the woman who lived in there and talking about her alcoholism and a crazy ex. He was very exaggerated in how he talked with a lot of gestures. My mom stood there listening to him. I don't know if it was sheer distraction or she didn't want to be rude not listening, but either way I don't recall her ever having a good look around those rooms. I went and looked. All doors were open, had neatly made beds with dark wood bed frames, bureaus with mirrors and nightstands. There were sliding mirror closets and they were empty except for one had men's clothes hanging pushed against one corner. Nothing was on the nightstands other than a lamp and nothing on the bureaus. I went into the bathrooms and there was nothing on the vanity in them other than hand soap. I looked in the showers too but nothing other than bar soap. The bedroom on the left had an empty suitcase laying open on the middle of the bed. This was one of the rooms with the empty closet. After seeing all this, I came back onto the landing and started slowly heading down the stairs. They were still talking and absent-mindedly followed me down to the living room. That's when he mentioned dinner and we left shortly after. I think that's why my mom didn't notice a lot and didn't believe me at first. She didn't take more than a quick glance upstairs and when we were in the basement he was just as as talkative. A commentator on here who works with law enforcement pointed out this was probably a sex trafficking situation. The bedroom in the basement is where a victim is kept drugged and abused until broken and then trafficked. I honestly think this is more plausible with the situation as well as my city is actually a hot spot for that. I am so grateful we got out of there and I hope my experience could help someone one day notice the details and get out of the situation safely. Stay safe and blessed people. Could use a throwaway but it's also not really a big deal. I thought I was bisexual for the longest time because I always had an interest in guys since high school. Not in any other way than I wanted to try giving head. Well, sure enough, I took to good old Craigslist to find a suitor for my request. Found a guy, texted, and he drove down and I met him in his car. Now it wasn't really anything but a simple transaction, just a blow and go type arrangement. But I realized as soon as I put it in my mouth that I was without a doubt, 100%, undeniably straight. The thing is, he didn't take too kindly to me not finishing him and said that he had put the child locks on the door and I wasn't allowed to leave. Thankfully either he forgot or was bluffing, but I tried the door and booked it into someone's backyard. I wasn't so much frightened as I was trying to get the taste in my mouth. 